0: Setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine.
1: Welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. Dr. Mitch Earlywine here, author of the Oxford University Pressbook, Understanding Marijuana, I have over 150 publications on drugs and the addictions, and I also pen the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times. But you guys knew that. Today we'll chat with noted economist Dr. Arthur Benavie, author of the new eye-opening book, How the Drug War Ruins American Lives. We'll also have a new segment on self-compassion in the art of activism. Dr. Benavie is Professor Emeritus of Economics from UNC Chapel Hill. He has dozens of previous publications, including an old favorite of mine, Drugs, America's Holy War. The new book is a stellar addition to the literature, and it really takes readers by the hand. Once you see the clarity of the writing, you won't be surprised to learn he's also an award-winning teacher. Art Benavi, welcome to Burning Issues.
2: It's great to be here. I'm very happy to be here.
1: Great. So, a lot of our listeners know that the drug war is not working. Why can't we really arrest our way out of substance abuse problems?
2: That's a very good problem. I think that the arrests may even help because one of the problems is that when you criminalize a drug, you push it into the underground. It's then controlled by gangsters, it's then laced with poison very often. And now, the f- fact that so many people are dying from heroin overdose and these synthetic opioids, I mean, the heroin overdose has a lot to do with the war on drugs because the gangsters aren't worried about having uh, the drug be clean. And our laws also are pretty screwed up because it's interesting to note that now we are worried about people who are overdosing on heroin and we're worried about rehabilitating and helping them and all that. This is not the way it was 10, 15, 20 years ago when a different population, i.e. African Americans and Latinos, were using these drugs and we were putting them in prison. So it's a fascinating point to me. It's not one of the big lessons from the drug war is it's not the drug itself. That's a myth. It's who is using the drug. And you can see it when you study the history of the drug war.
1: You emphasize some of the disparities, particularly related to race, in the arrest. Can you comment Mm -hmm. on that?
2: Well, the drug war is is going to involve law enforcement committing racial injustices. It's built into the system in this country. And the reason for it is because you can only arrest less than 5% of the people that are using drugs. For example, right now we have close to 40 million people a year who use illicit drugs, and we're arresting like 1.6 million. That's less than 5%. So what does that mean? That means that there are 95% of the people out there who are not being arrested. The police have a wide choice, a wide range of where they send their troops to fight the war on drugs. We all have, to some extent, almost all of us have implicit biases. We have stereotypes and our stereotypes involve African-Americans and Latinos as being drug sellers. So the police kind of automatically move into areas where you have a a large percentage of African-Americans and Latinos, people of color. And one of the pieces of evidence for that is that in markets where you have both white sellers of illicit drugs and people of color selling illicit drugs, the police don't even notice the white people. I mean, research has shown that. But we also have an overwhelming evidence that we have these stereotypes of African-Americans and Latinos. No question about that. So what happens is that the police do this. They arrest disproportionately African-Americans and Latinos for this nonviolent crime of violating drug laws. So what happens to the police when they do that? Do they get punished? No. The, the Supreme Court, for example, supports this whole idea. They hate the drug war. They, they call it like murder. They, they actually call it equivalent to murder. The Supreme Court doesn't do anything because when you have disproportionate impact, in other words, blacks are the ones that are mostly, and African Latinos are the ones that are being punished, the Supreme Court does not see that as unlawful, which is pretty incredible. There has to be an authority that is purposely carrying out this discrimination.
1: It's sad but true, and you cover it really well in both chapters, one on the New York State and one on the Seattle predicament. That's, that's right. And I'm really stunned by this, and in, in many ways it's it's super embarrassing. When I'm covering something like this, I'm often afraid. Are, are the police talking to you about it? Are they are you mm-hmm. getting any backlash?
2: Police that I've interviewed are very much against the drug war for a lot of reasons. I mean, they realize it's not working, they see that it's racist, but these are the people I'm talking to and, and some of the officers I talk to in Chapel Hill. So they recognize that. I mean, and, and I have this. I teach this class of first-year students at the University of North Carolina, and I talk to these students, and they're very much afraid of the police because the police go after them.
1: Well, it's interesting because it sort of segues into some of the drug testing things we've seen both in high schools and the workplace Why aren't drug drug tests for high school students a good idea?
2: It's a terrible idea. I mean, first of all, all the evidence that we have shows that drug testing simply does not work in terms of reducing the rate of use of these illicit drugs, and it doesn't seem to affect the attitudes of people. You're talking about high school students or adults, it doesn't matter. And this idea of drug testing people, random drug testing, started in the 1980s as the drug war started to skyrocket for reasons that i talk about in my book so when you look at the whole issue of drug testing take a look at the for example the american academy of pediatrics has reviewed the studies on drug testing and they concluded this that there's little ev quote there's little evidence of the effectiveness of school-based drug testing in the scientific literature i agree with them i've looked at it myself they also warned that there are substantial risks of harming the parent-child and school-child relationship by creating an environment of resentment, distrust, and suspicion, end of quote. So there, but also a national poll that was taken of physicians, 83% disapproved of drug testing in public schools. And these, the doctors surveyed in this particular poll were in pediatrics, family medicine, and adolescent medicine. So and that's in accord with my study of the different research that's been done on drug testing, that it simply doesn't work. And it's interesting to me that when you look at the Supreme Court and you look at our legislators, and, of course, you look at the executive branch who has a vested interest in the drug war, they all say, oh, this is the, this is the best way to counter this use of drugs by young people or by employees.
1: Yeah, the workplace situation is another one that's really dreadful. Could you elaborate on how it's really not helping the workplace?
2: It's definitely not. Well, I mean, there are some a lot of good people, for example, who may use marijuana once in a while will simply not uh, will not work at a place like that. And also, the test can be wrong. You can have false positives, which can destroy a person's career. Also, the idea that. Doctors sometimes, re- they, they will recommend drugs that people need for, for pain or for some other reason, and industry sometimes will throw somebody out of a job because they're using drugs that are prescribed by their doctors. So it's it, and not to mention the idea that, uh, that uh, this is something that's quite shocking to somebody like myself who has never been drug tested and, and lived through a period where there was no drug testing for, without some cause, The random drug testing didn't exist until the 1980s. This is interesting, isn't it, that we did not have random drug testing before the 1980s when the drug war started to escalate. A lot of these erosions that I talk about in my book, these er property erosions and these human rights erosions, did not exist prior to the 1980s.
1: It's funny, too. uh, My cannabis radio brother, Russ Belleville applied Mm -hmm. for a job and then realized they were going to drug test him and just ended up just walking right out. And I I think sometimes these places are are missing out on some of the best applicants simply because of this crazy policy.
2: So both the industry and the individual are losing.
1: Exactly. As the beloved Vivian McPeak would say, we've got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We'll be right (laughs) back with Art Benevy. And more
0: burning issues. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Dr. Dabber, hurry! It's previously on the Stoner Jesus Show. St. Paul's doing good work.
1: This why, Greg, you're a tang. If I can use a medical term.
2: Yes, The New England medical journal.
1: Oh, my That's God. That's right. uh, You can call me Dr. St. Paul now. Dr. St. Paul.
2: I don't think I will.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't even qualify to be a vet. Oh, uh, I'm a special kind of better. I make him less lonely.
0: <laughs> the Stoner Jesus Show. Live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Or find the Stoner Jesus Show podcast on demand at CannabisRadio.com and StonerJesus.net. Peace, bitches. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: And we're back with Dr. Art Benevy, the author of... Drugs, America's Holy War, and his new book, How the Drug War Ruins American Lives. We were just starting to talk a little bit about some of the roles of how the police work and wanted to ask you about forfeiture laws and Mm -hmm. how they relate to the drug war.
2: Well, I think this is one of the most crucial things of all, because the drug war really started to escalate. I mean, it was started under Nixon wanted to do it. He had a vision of the drug war. and. I have a quote here that, that I'm sure it surprised you. But Nixon's counsel, John Ehrlichman, let the cat out of the bag when he got out of prison and was interviewed on a radio show as to what the motive behind the drug war was, in the words of Richard Nixon. And this was like 1970s, right in that area. And here's the quote. Look, we understood we couldn't make it illegal to be young or poor or black in the United States but we could criminalize their common pleasure. We understood that drugs were not the health problem we were making them out to be, but it was such a perfect issue that we couldn't resist it.
1: That's just heartbreaking.
2: It's incredible. Now, here's the other other statement from... This is a a direct quote from Nixon himself, and this is from Haldeman, his chief of staff. Quote, this is what he told Haldeman in the Haldeman's diary. Quote, the key is to devise a system that recognizes this, namely the blacks, while not appearing to.
1: That's so it, this, exactly.
2: Okay, so Nixon, Nixon didn't have the tools. I mean, aside, he, at the time that he did this, he didn't have the tools to realize his vision of a drug war because the federal government really had no role in street crime uh, unless it crossed over states. That was the province of local police, and, the, and they didn't want to get into the whole issue of nonviolent drug law violations. So what happened was this issue was solved when Reagan came into power in in the 1980s. So Reagan declared war on it, and what the federal government did, and this is where forfeiture comes into it, what they did was they created the tools that motivated state and local law enforcement to go after nonviolent drug law violations. And the way they did that was with two laws. One was grants named after a narcotics officer by the name of Byrne, D-Y-R-N-E. Okay, you you can look it up now under Byrne JAG grants. Okay, they still exist. These grants, which started in like 1988, were rewards to police departments for arresting people for drugs. Okay? So every time you arrested another person, you got additional money from the grant. And they even estimated how much the, the coefficient, how much that was. The other thing, which I think is more difficult to eliminate, and this is, you know, the forfeiture thing really sticks in my throat, and it's one reason I wrote this new book, because it was like I had this image of pushing a boulder off a cliff, and once you do that, you can't get it back, because what they did with the forfeiture thing was the government gave itself in in 1984 the power to legally confiscate your property without bringing criminal charges against the owner and resulting in profits for law enforcement every time they take your property and that was the way the law was set up so the way it works in a nutshell if you is is if a law enforcement officer has reasonable suspicion or probable cause that your property, believe it or not, your property had violated the drug law in some way, like your car carried drugs or your house involved drugs or your bonds or your stocks or your cash in some way was touched something that was illegal under the drug laws, then the officer could seize your property. In other words, take possession of it. Just take possession of it temporarily Then a law enforcement officer could give it to, say, the federal government, which is one of the main things here, give it to the FBI or give it to the Drug Enforcement Administration, and it would then go to a judge who would then decide on the basis of very slim evidence whether the property was guilty, so... Can you see how crazy this is? It's the property. Oh, you property. see these cases
1: like state of such and such versus $77,000 and stuff like that? I mean, it's absolutely nuts. That's right. That's
2: exactly right. Yeah, that's one of the cases. Sure. <laughs> it's incredible. Your property, your inanimate object, your car, can, your car, your house can break the drug laws. And I say in the book, this is crazy, but unfortunately it's the law. Okay? Well, and you and they're so motivated... Answer, because yeah, they end up getting the money, right? I mean, it's Exactly. Just well, That's the point. What happens is you, the law enforcement turns it over to this judge, this federal judge. It becomes part of federal law. And then this 1984 law authorizes the attorney general of the United States to split the money. Their law enforcement in the state and locality get up to 80% of it. And the rest of it goes to the attorney general of the United States. So, well, so the
1: sad thing it, is, it seems like you might want to investigate a murder, but then you'd think, oh, no, we're going to actually make more money if we go investigate this drug crime. Well, that
2: is exactly right, Mitch. That's exactly the point. Police will avoid going after people on with criminal charges because that's criminal forfeiture, okay? And that is very difficult. Because in that case, the owner has the full panoply of constitutional rights to defend him or herself. Here, you're, you're bringing property into court, and the way to prove the property is guilty is by simply preponderance of evidence, which means more likely than not that the property was a bad boy and broke the law.
1: It's just stunning.
2: It's stunning. I mean, it really is. And so when I started to learn that and understand that better, I mean, that just blew my mind. That's one of the – and the difficulty, I mean, there have been at least three times, including recently, where they tried to sort of diminish – the revenue that the the profits that police got from this, and every time the law enforcement lobby got together and smashed it down. This just happened at the end of March. In other words, if you remember, Eric Holder came out and said, we can't let this happen anymore. Exactly. Which, of course, had a loophole, because, uh, in other words, we're not letting state and local law enforcement do this anymore, okay? They're not going to get money from sending seizing property and sending it to the feds, Okay. But there was a big loophole in the sense that if they had a federal marshal with them, they, then they, they were exempted from it. Well, so now what happened at the end of March, I don't know if you saw this, is that Loretta Lynch simply reversed them, and now it's back to the way it was.
1: Exactly. exactly.
2: And under pressure, they did this. I mean, that's, that's, that's incredible. I, I said that in the book, actually. I said, Eddie, the future, you know, this is questionable about the future because it could be changed, and sure enough, that is not in the book. I mean, well, no, I can't say it, But
1: yeah, there you have it. <laughs> Another thing that really opened my eyes you do some great coverage about how undercover police work really works. And I didn't understand. They don't even need probable cause to send an undercover agent into an establishment.
2: They don't. They don't. Exactly right. Isn't that amazing? And what is probable cause anyway? Probable cause doesn't mean a thing. Probable cause is basically, according to the legal experts, it's based on rumor. Hearsay, circumstantial evidence, and the word of snitches. Snitches are notorious liars. They're trying to, first they get money, they can get millions of dollars from being snitches. You asked me about that in your list. And, of course, they're trying to get their charges lowered. So they try to say anything they can. And and so it's pretty notorious about snitches. But that's when the police get the word of a snitch. I have things in the book where there's one mistake after another. There was a re- there was a, a study several years ago in Durham, North Carolina. Here that where, where like eighty seven percent of the SWAT break-ins were wrong, were mistaken because they relied on the snitch.
1: Oh man, and they are yeah. no knock sometimes, and destroy property, kill dogs,
2: all kinds of stuff. Well, that's fascinating, and they have a motive to do it. I mean, <sighs> you know, for example, it. I mean, it used to be you're talking about the, these SWAT. The SWAT call-outs you know, back in, in 1980 and, and earlier, you know, it, it was for the usual reason that you have SWAT teams. It riots or hostage-taking or something of that nature. Now, two-thirds of it, according to a recent study, two-thirds are going after drugs, mostly marijuana.
0: It's, it's and, just... and,
2: and two-thirds of the break-ins are violent. They break down the door, they throw in a concussion grenade, and so forth.
1: It's a really sad use of our tax dollars. It breaks my heart. Oh, absolutely! I mean, so hey, we've had a great time here with Dr. Arthur Benavy, author of the new book "How the Drug War Ruins American Lives," and uh, we'll have to have you back on, Art, because we're clearly just scratched the surface. But I really appreciate you being right here on
0: Burning Issues. Pleasure. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors.
2: Low on funds? Don't worry. Weed Firm Replanted is free to download. Download Weed Firm Replanted for free on the App Store and Google Play today. Get growing, Mr. Growing.
0: The cannabis industry is growing. Business is booming. And as new opportunities arise in newly legalized states, each market is getting more competitive. Call Canna Management Corporation and let our team get you ready to grow. 415-269-8015. That's 415-269-8015. Or visit canna-management.com. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living.
2: Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently
0: Time to fan the fire on some more Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: Hey, welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. Hey, we've mentioned time and again how our thoughts tend to contribute to the way that we feel and I'm worried that I've given folks the wrong impression about dealing with thoughts. It's easy for us to think that somehow we should control our own thoughts and then control how we feel. If that's working for you, my effusive congratulations. But I find that controlling my own thoughts just turns into a struggle a lot of the time. My mind chatters one thing and I bark back at it. It sounds like Elmer Fudd and Daffy Duck arguing duck season, rabbit season. It can really wear me out but instead it might be more energizing to just recognize these thoughts as only thoughts then i can kind of leave it at that it's easy to think that our thoughts define who we are but i don't think that's quite true it certainly doesn't have to be i notice that there's usually a little witness in my head who monitors the little voice in my head i know i sound psychotic but before you pump me full of cannabidiol Let me try to explain for just a minute. We all have thoughts, and they come and go. They chatter away. But sure enough, we have another part of our minds that can kind of recognize that the chattering part is just the chattering part. We've got that silent witness part of our minds, thank goodness. It's good to have the silent witness keep an eye on the chatterer, if only to remind us that thoughts come and go, and that they're really only thoughts. There's nothing inherently wrong with regular mind chatter. The chattering part of my mind can help me. It helps me plan my day. It helps me program the remote. But we don't have to believe everything we think. Just because part of the mind is chattering doesn't mean that we have to listen. And we certainly don't have to think that the chattering mind has a pipeline to the truth with a capital T. So... Sometimes the chattering part of my mind might say something like, oh, you're wasting your time, or you don't work hard enough, or you can't do that, it's too scary. Now you can imagine how I could get hooked on one of these thoughts. I could try to argue with it and argue back, and it just whipped me into a frenzy. Fortunately, I've got that witness part of my mind too. So once I realize what's up, the witness part of my mind can say, oh, that old thought, I remember you, shatterer, you're so funny. And then I can just kind of get back to doing the things that really matter to me. Regardless of what my mind is saying, I usually know what I really need to do. Yeah, you know, don't let the chatter keep you from doing what matters. Some of my pals call this looking at your thoughts rather than looking through them. We've all had those moments when our thoughts are right up in our faces. Those are the times when we tend to see the world through our thoughts. Whatever the chattering mind is saying seems like it's true, and whether it's true or not, we seem to believe it, and then we feel and sometimes act not so great. That's when our thoughts can get the better of us. Take the brain chatter I mentioned before, the idea you can't do that, it's too scary. If I'm seeing the world through that thought, I'll probably feel really scared, and I probably won't do the things I really value. But sometimes we can catch those moments and look at our thoughts instead of through them. Here's a chance to see the thought for what it is, just a thought. And with that in mind, I can act in ways that are more consistent with my values, regardless of whatever my chattering mind says. So again, my mind might say, you can't do that, it's too scary. But if I look at the thought and see it for what it is, I can go ahead and behave the way I want to behave. I can do the things that matter to me, even if I am afraid even if my mind is chattering. So take this chance to do what you value, no matter how you feel or what your mind might say. Thanks so much for sharing the Burning Issues dream here at CannabisRadio.com. You can also find us on R-Height Radio and iTunes. My enthusiastic thanks to the Cannabis Radio production mavens and today's special guest, Dr. Art Benevy, author of How the Drug War Ruins American Lives. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, follow your heart and let the data be your guide.